0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro recharge kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.
1: Welcome back to the MLB.com StackCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Editor. And we are in the middle of an off day for the ALCS. The Yankees are shockingly up 3-2 and we are waiting the next game of the Cubs Dodgers NLCS tonight um so since we last spoke on this show I think a lot has happened it's been a couple of really interesting series the fact that the Yankees are up 3-2 when they were down 2-0 is something so I think we um you know when we talk about this series we have to talk about the Houston offense that has disappeared because I think the last time we did this show we talked about how the Astros had had a historically good offensive season and had gotten off to a fantastic start in the division series against Boston and now not so much
2: yeah not so much uh the numbers are stark, and they are ugly for Houston. Right now, uh, New York is hitting 224, 295, 397, triple sl- slash line. That equates to a 303 weighted on-base average. Which and in
1: itself is, is not that great. I no, mean, that's below average. That's too. below
2: average. Average is like it's around 327. 320, um, and their expected weight on-base is 308, so right in line with what you would expect. The Astros, 147. 234, 213, 213 slugging. That is positively, uh, I don't even...
1: It's like a pitcher level. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
2: Uh, Weight on base of 210, but an expected weight on base of 293 still
1: not great still not great but it's interesting because that's only a 15 point difference from the astros to the yankees right he expected weight on a base of, of 293 to 308 it's not that big a deal uh but the actual difference is almost 100 points so that says to me two things it's a little bit of bad luck you know unfortunate batted ball outcomes uh but it's also just bad process like they're certainly not earning a lot of success i think is, is the right way i would put it and I think the the best way to look at this is barrels, right? I mean, we talk about barrels a lot, and if you aren't familiar, uh, we consider barrels to be the perfect combination of exit velocity and launch angle because you need to do both things. So the way we've defined this is that it's a uh, batted ball combination with an expected outcome of at least a 500 average and a 1,500 slugging percentage, and that's just the, the minimum. Like The average of it is is way higher than that. So if you look at the four... Uh, LCS teams what they've done in the LCS so far they've averaged a 600 batting average on barrels that makes perfect sense the Yankees are six for nine nine times they've barreled the ball four of them are homers they also have a double and a single three flyouts to the outfield the Astros are oh for six they've barreled the ball up six times uh, and this isn't a ballpark thing three at home three on the road all six of them have been flyouts to center field Right, and so that says to me a couple things. Uh, partially that direction matters. You hit these balls down the line, so every single one of these ba- these barrels had a projected distance of between 367 and 396. You hit those down the line, that's six home runs, right? Instead, they've hit them all pretty much to dead center to the warning track, and they've all been caught by Aaron Hicks.
2: Yeah, you can hit balls, I think mean, there are probably balls down the, down the line in Yankee Stadium that hit the second deck. Right, that are 390, that's upper tank. That are, that are 397.
1: <laughs> the expected batting average on these six particular batted balls is 710. And their actual batting average is, by definition, zero. (laughs) So I look at that and I say, well, you know, they've been struggling. There's no doubt about that. But also, how do you go 0 for 6? How do you get not a single hit on a barrel?
2: And just to give some even further context, context, against the Red Sox in the division series, the Astros had 10 barrels, 10 hits. 10 for 10. 10 for 10 on barrels. (laughs) So,
1: you know, if you want to say that's uh, karma coming, you shouldn't be going 10 for 10 either, right? Like, it's funny how this scales the tips. Uh, But I found this really interesting. I, I was looking this morning at hard-hit balls, and we've defined that 95 miles an hour of exit velocity or higher is a hard-hit ball. Of the four LCS teams, uh, and this is just in the League Championship Series, the Astros have the most hard-hit balls. They've got 37, uh, Yankees 36, Dodgers 33, Cubs only 22. We'll get back to the Cubs (laughs) offense in a minute. Uh, They have the most hard-hit balls. Uh, Hard-hit
2: balls being 95-plus.
1: Yeah, Yeah. right. Uh, But the lowest expected average on those balls is just 514. Everybody else is between 560 and 580. And usually the lowest actual average. This is my favorite part. If you look at the four LCS teams, uh, their average on hard-hit balls, the Cubs are 591, Dodgers 545, Yankees 514, Astros 297. I mean, this kind of goes back to what we're talking about. And how do you turn a hard-hit ball into an out? You hit it on the ground. Uh, On these hard-hit balls that are 95 miles an hour or over, the Dodgers have a launch angle of almost 18 degrees, Cubs 15, Yankees 14, Houston 11. These are a lot of hard-hit grounders, I think. So it's, it's a combination of things.
2: Yeah, they've been a, they've been a little, quote-unquote, unlucky, for lack of a better term, but, you know, the, the Yankees are doing something right in terms of getting, when they hit the ball hard, getting them hit it into the ground. But the, the over-six-barrels thing, that's just kind of ridiculous. And,
1: and, you know, the next time that there's a game, like, I'm absolutely going to be watching this and, like, waiting for that first barrel and see if it, if it falls in or not. Um, I do think that there's a couple of reasons here, right? I think two reasons. One is, this is a short series. These things happen all the time during the season, and nobody pays attention. Because nobody cares what happens, like, on a West Coast trip in June when it's not on national TV. Uh, As an example, the Astros have had six different losing streaks of at least three games this year. They lost uh, three games in a row four times. One time they had a four-game streak. One time they had a five-game streak. And uh, in mid-September, from September 9th to 13th, they scored nine runs in five games against this group of starting pitchers. Daniel Gossett, Daniel Mengden, Kendall Graveman, Garrett Richards, and Tyler Skaggs, and Richards was, like, just off of, of... injury. So it's not exactly like the all-star team right there. My point being, this is one of the best offensive teams we've seen in decades. This is just a thing that can happen. And then separately from that, the Yankees have really, really good pitching, right?
2: Yeah, and also the, the 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 um the thing about the Astros lineup the way it's constructed now is like you hear a lot you're hearing a lot of call like in a situation like this normally you'd say like, oh well we gotta make some changes. You know, maybe like move the lineup around or maybe like bench someone as good as the Astros offense is, the way their roster is constructed, it's not constructed for the postseason. It's not like they're in a great position to do that. Like, yeah, Josh Reddick's over 17 this 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 series, but like, are you really gonna bench him for Derek Fisher, who was pretty bad down the stretch and is like
1: it hasn't played. He hasn't played it hasn't like a pinch period. you know, like
2: Cameron Mayman played against the lefty, made a terrible, terrible uh miss it wasn't an error because he didn't touch it, but a terrible miss play in left field, isn't a great hitter to begin with. Like this is kind of who the Astros are. Maybe if, if Jake Marisnyk, uh were healthy, he'd play against the lefty. But against the righty, you, you still probably wouldn't play
1: him. Well, you're right. I mean, this is their lineup, and it's a very good lineup, and it's gotten to this point. And, you know, it's funny to think of the idea of trying to bench one of these guys because I look at it from the other side. How many Yankee fans wanted to sit down Aaron Judge like four days ago? Because Aaron Judge had looked awful for, like, you know, the wildcard game is good, but then the ALDS, not so great. Uh, And then all of a sudden Aaron Judge has looked, you know, really impressive against this pitching staff. So, I mean, a lot of this just goes back to these are things that can happen over a short period of time. And unfortunately for the Astros, it's happening, like, right in the middle of the single most important games of the year. Um, But I do think we should give some credit to the Yankee rotation. Like, I think everybody, ourselves included, you come into this series and you think to yourself – Well, the Yankees have this amazing bullpen, right? They've got Robertson and Kaneley and and Chad Green and Chapman and and Warren and all these guys. Uh, But the Yankee starters have been fantastic. The Houston slash line against just the Yankee starting pitchers, 133, 184, 220, right? I mean, that's, you know, Tanaka's been fantastic. Sabathia has, like, reinvented himself. He's been extremely impressive. They've barely even used Sonny Gray this postseason, you know? And then Severino bounced back from that awful wildcard game uh, and has looked fantastic. There is, as you would expect, somewhat of an expected weighted on base gap. Like, you can be good, but also be a little more fortunate. Uh, in the LCS, the Yankee starting pitchers have allowed a 274 expected weighted on base, which is very, very good, but it's been a 193 actual on base. This goes back to the over 6 on barrels and the hard hit balls and everything.
2: Yeah, is interesting because, you know, every postseason usually what happens is some, some impending free agent has a big postseason, and you hear like, oh, well, this guy's making himself a lot of money this postseason, which is really is just like, it's not really true. It doesn't really work that way. But Tanaka's kind of an interesting case because he has that opt-out sitting there. And, like, six weeks ago, it looked like he would not. He has three. If he doesn't opt-out, he has three years and $67 million left. And about a month ago, six weeks ago, you would have guessed he's probably not going to opt-out. But the way he pitched just the last couple starts and in the postseason, now I have to think almost certainly he's going he's to opt-out. He's
1: definitely going to. I don't think he will get more per year than, he, than he's going to get right now. But he will get more overall. He'll get more years for, like, maybe the same amount of money, Right.
2: Yeah it was and it was almost it was almost actually going to work out perfectly for the Yankees where he was going to thread this needle of like having been good enough for them this year but not so good that he wouldn't opt out but like Still stick around, and you'd feel good about him for the next three years. That's right.
1: Years. Opt-outs usually favor the team, right? Like, <laughs> uh, like, or, or the player. Excuse me, because you don't want to have a guy who wasn't good enough to opt out.
2: But like, right now, if he opts out, it like leaves a big hole in the Yankees' yeah. rotation, right? And like, he's a big part of it. So you know, obviously, the Yankees are probably not worried about that that much right now. But it is kind of fascinating that like it looked like he was going to be around, and they would have they were actually probably going to feel pretty good about him because his his numbers this year were a bit of an aberration. But now, if he hits the free agent market, the free agent market gets a lot more interesting. And, I mean, I think it becomes that much more certain the Yankees re-sign him or get Darvish or maybe get Otani. They have
1: Uh, to. I mean, people, because Sabathia is a free agent, maybe he'll come back, like, on a short deal. And people forget uh, they were trying to rely on Michael Pineda, who was inconsistent and blew out his elbow, and he's not someone they can rely on next year. So, like, going into next season, you have Gray and you have Severino and... Who knows after that? I yeah. mean, that's a next season problem, certainly. Um, but anyway, I find that really interesting. So on Friday, the, uh, game six, will be Severino versus Justin Verlander, which I think is fascinating because Verlander has been one of the more, I think, interesting stories, right? Because, uh, you know, he got traded over from from Detroit and was fantastic for the Astros. And there's some interesting stories about how he's done that. I, I think uh, there was one in SI recently that was like, the Astros have this crazy, like, high-speed camera that showed him exactly like the tilt on his slider and how to change that. And I don't doubt that's true. like. Obviously, the Astros are very, very analytical. Um, but it's fair to point out he was actually pitching a lot better with the Tigers before the trade. But it's interesting because among the starting pitchers still pitching, he has been the best this postseason based on expected weighted on base. He's he a 2.34 against. Remember, we said the league average, I believe, is 3.27. That's just ahead of Darvish and Quintana and Tanaka and Keiko. He has been the most dominant pitcher, and I think we saw you know his start the other day. Where I mean, that's that's like old school pitching right there.
2: Yeah, his his start. Um... I'll admit I didn't even realize it at the time, and I just started digging into it uh, today. But it, like, from a StatCast perspective, it might have been his most impressive, impressive start uh, since we started StatCast in 2015, and I'll explain. Um, so just going by, uh, by spin rate, uh, his average four-seam spin rate in that game, 2,635 RPMs. Which is the highest he's had all season, the highest he's had in his career in a game. And just to give you some context, basically, like 2,500 is like a, an elite level for a four seam fastball. That's where you really get the sort of like the real rising, like the high level rising bas- fastball effect. This is when you're in the Max Scherzer zone, the Yu Darvish zone. So for that start, his average was 26 35. He did not, he threw 71 fastballs, he did not have a single fastball below 2,500 RPMs, which is, from a nerdy stackhouse perspective, fascinating. Additionally, his velo, average velo is 96.1 miles per hour. He only had five starts this year where he was above 96. Two of them have come in his two starts in October. So he is throwing the ball as well as he had all year, arguably as well as he had in the last three years.
1: And I remember watching that game, and a couple of the strikeouts he got were like, you know, 96 high spin right at the top of the zone, which is exactly where you would want to put a high spin fastball, right? Because there's just almost no way someone's going to catch up to that. And not only that, not only the data, just visually, it looks, it's it's great to watch, right? That is yep. that is the definition to me of blowing somebody away, is, is high spin at the top of the zone like
2: that. Yeah, and I saying, I probably don't need to remind you, but I'll remind you, complete game, shocking in this day and age. Uh 13 Ks, one walk, one run allowed. Uh, It was really, it was by far the best pitching performance of the postseason. I'm not, like, I guess Tanaka last night was probably second.
1: Uh, Yeah, Severino the other day was pretty good. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's got to be this. Um, And and that's exactly what the Astros needed, right? Like, the the pitching is not why the Astros forgot how to hit. Like, the bullpen has been a mess, and we'll get to that in a second too. But uh, Verlander has been fantastic. And I'm really excited about a Verlander-Severino matchup. On Friday, I think that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah,
2: the other interesting subplot of this series is that the home, home team has won every game. Yes, um, which is a, a quirk, but it's it's kind of amazing. So there have been three hundred postseason series in MLB history,
1: up to and including this year's division series.
2: Yes, three hundred in history. Nice round number. Only eight have have, have 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 been a situation where all five where the home team won every single game, but only four of those have been seven game series. So this would just be the fifth time in MLB history if the Astros won game six six and seven in which the home team won every game. In fact, it never happened until 1987 World Series. 1987 World Series, the Twins, Cardinals, home team won every game. Again, in 1991, Twins, Braves, home team won every game. So the Twins are 8-0 at home in the World Series, 0-6 on the road, two World Series titles. Um, And then since then, the two other times it's happened, it actually involved... The Yankees and the Astros. 2001 World Series, Yankees lost all four road games, won the three middle games at home. And then the two, 2004 NLCS, when the Astros were still in National League, that amazing Carlos. That was
1: the Brad Lidge game, right? No no, 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 Blitz Lidge
2: was 05. The, the, 05. Astros, the Astros won the series of the Brad Lidge game. 04 was the crazy Carlos Beltran in October.
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes. And You're so right. You're right.
2: Cardinals won games one and two, Astros win th- three at home, with a Jeff Kent walk-off homer in a one-nothing game in Game Five, and then they go in Game Six, and they, the the Cardinals win Game Six at home uh, with a Jim Edwin's walk-off homer. It's one of my favorite postseason moments, where he sort of like hit the ball and then just like flip, flipped his bat and just like did like a double clenched fist. It's it's like a, it's one of the best one of the best reactions you'll ever see for a walk-off home run, uh, and then the Cardinals won Game Seven.
1: And what I like about the fact that uh, the home team has won each of the five games of this series is that. It makes sense for the Yankees, right? They were one game below 500 on the road this year, but fantastic at home. But it doesn't make sense for the Astros. They're pretty good at home, and they were unbelievable on the road. Like this, this whole series has had a whole lot of narratives like crashing into one another. Yeah, the
2: Yankees are the only AL team that won more than 50 games at home. They were 51 and 30 at home. The Astros were tied with the Indians for 53 road wins this year.
1: You're right, it's, it's <laughs> and they just got
2: got, got smoked at Yankees Yankees. Although game game four, where they they had a four nothing lead and uh, and coughed it up, was uh, was uh, was not so not so pretty. I,
1: I do want to take a minute to break down what I think was one of the most interesting plays of the postseason so far. In game two, uh, Houston won it two to one uh, Jose Altuve scored from first on a walk off a uh, hit to the outfield from, from Carlos Correa. Just remember what this sounded like for a second.
0: ALTUVE NOT GOING 3-2, and Correa hits this one out in the right center field, and that one's going to get down for a base hit. Altuve is on
2: his way to third base, and Altuve around third and coming home. Here's a throw to the plate by Gregorius. It's dropped by Sanchez. Altuve scores, and the Astros win it 2-1. Carlos Correa the hero. Correa mobbed by second base. He drives in both Astros runs and the Astros go up two games
0: to none in the ALCS.
1: So that entire play took 10.6 seconds from from the beginning to the end like that's not a lot of time right And there's so much that happened in this play and we really you know we, we broke it down and I, I found it really interesting because there's so many decisions and you know at the time I remember the first uh, reaction I saw from people online was that uh, Aaron judge screwed up right Aaron judge should have either tried to throw it home by himself Or he missed his cutoff, man. He should have thrown it to the second baseman and not the shortstop. So we were able uh, not only to look at the numbers, but to actually get some quotes from Judge himself. And I really, I I just enjoyed everything about this play because it sort of reminded me of the Alex Gordon play from a couple years ago. Not identical, obviously, but we just didn't have these tools at the time to break it down. So this actually worked out really well for us. So when Judge threw that ball, he was 343 feet away from home. And so immediately that says to me, of course he shouldn't have tried to airmail at home. There was no way that was ever going to work out. Um, but I, I found it interesting about the cutoff man part. So Starlin Castro, the second baseman, was 183 feet away from home. Shortstop Gregorius was just 137 feet away from home. Obviously Castro was closer to Aaron Judge. And the throw went past Castro and it went to Gregorius. And then there was a little bit of uh, impact at second base with, with Carlos Correa. And, and nothing that would, uh, was against the rules or anything, but it looked like it mattered a little bit. And people were like, well, he missed the cutoff man. He should have thrown it to Castro. But I loved this quote that we got from, from Judge. He said, I just tried to get it into Didi because I thought if I got it to him, I'd have a shot at the plate. Anytime I can get it to Didi with his arm, I feel like we have a shot at the plate. Joe already echoed that exactly. Well, what's nice about that is we have data on this. It's easy for us to look this up, and so we did. And he's totally right, right? I mean, we've had three years of StatCast. Castro has had only two throws measured at harder than 88, and both of those were back in 2015. Gregorius has 28 throws harder than uh, 90 miles an hour, topping out at 96. This year, he was one of just 10 shortstops to hit 90. There is no question that Gregorius has the stronger arm. Yes, it took, like, another fraction of a second for the ball to get to him, but then he's closer to home anyway, right? This and, right there's, on a
2: more basic level, there is a reason that Sterling Castro is no longer a shortstop. <laughs>
1: well, there's that, too. Yeah, I, I mean, so I I cannot fault Judge for this in any way. He did the right thing.
2: Yeah, and it worked out. As, as Mike said, it was perfect in the way that... Uh, the data lined up with judges judge's thought process on the play yeah
1: absolutely so gregorius gets the ball and you know he's got to kind of throw around the runner sliding in a little bit and the throw was on target but it did bounce so that that's something there when he threw the ball altuve was 56 feet away from home plate and when the ball reached the catcher now this is not the same thing as the catcher catching the ball because obviously he didn't altuve was still 25 feet away from home so sanchez catches that ball uh altuve is out by I'd like to say a mile, but I don't have to. I can say literally 25 feet. Uh, there is almost a full second, 0.96 seconds, elapsed between the ball-touching Sanchez and Altuve scoring, which I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but it really is. I mean, that's that's a big amount. So, you know, in terms of should Altuve have gone, well, we know that the third-base coach for Houston, uh, Gary Pettis, is a very aggressive third-base coach. I think A.J. Hinch specifically said he's the most aggressive coach. And I, I think I understand why they sent him, because while a good play would have gotten him thrown out by a lot uh you do have to put the pressure on the defense to make two pretty tough relay throws and of course you've also got to think about the fact that you have all Chapman on the mound and that's not easy to do
2: yeah I think that's 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 the biggest thing is the Chapman on the mound um you know not only is he a strikeout pitcher he also gets a lot of pop-ups like the odds of like it's I mean you sort of basically looks. what are the odds of Marwin getting Altuve home from third and like are they better than the chances? And like, I'm not sure Gary Pettis was doing this exact calculation in his head, but this is generally the this is what you have to be thinking: like, the odds of him scoring this play better than the chances of Marwin driving home this run. And like, it's it's pretty. Cl- I think it's pretty close.
1: Yeah, and it was it was pretty clear both on the video and in the postgame comments that. <laughs> As soon as that ball was contacted, he was, he was sending Altuve home. This is not, oh, I see Judge throwing it to the guy I didn't expect. Now I'm going to send him home. No. That decision he's, was made long before he's, that.
2: Like, as Altuve hits second base, he is waving maniacally to send him home.
1: Right. And it, it's really interesting if you look at the win expectancy numbers. Obviously, he scored game over, 100% win expectancy. But if he'd stopped at third, 84% win expectancy, 60% if he'd been thrown out. So this is actually an enormous play, as you'd expect, like at the end of the game. Uh, if he's out at home... There's still an advantage to the Astros, but it's not a huge one. And as we said, that does not account for the quality of the pitcher on the mound. Yeah. So, so yeah. So what I found interesting and what I know you did as well is um, Altuve was hustling on that play. Like, really hustling. Because I think people have this idea that Altuve is like an elite speed demon. Maybe that's, you know, he steals bases. Obviously, he's not the biggest guy. And he is. He's, he's above average, right? But he's not Billy Hamilton, right? He's not Byron Buckton. Uh, his average sprint speed this year was 28 feet per second. Uh, the league average is twenty-seven feet per second, and that's the average of his max effort. So, uh, when you have the guys who are elite getting up to like thirty feet per second, he's at twenty-eight. That's above average. It's very good. He is not necessarily like top-end eighty speed, though, right? But on this play, did we find something different?
2: Yeah, he was. Uh, he topped out at twenty-nine point five feet per yeah, second, that's which is hustle. which is almost. He found that extra gear. He's that was almost. You know, like the we've said before, thirty is like the the magic mark of like you know truly like seventy grade speed, eighty grade speed, and like. He almost, he almost
1: got there. Yeah, uh, 10.27 seconds uh, first to home. That's his fastest since 2015. And what I really liked is, so he didn't have a big lead. 10.7 feet uh, when Chapman released the ball. It's actually below average uh, for a left-handed pitcher. I think 14.1 feet is the average. So he went from first to second in 3.62 seconds. Second to third in 3.33 seconds. Third to home in 3.32 seconds. So what that means is he had two trips of 90 feet that were faster than a trip of 79 feet. And what I actually like about that is, while that is technically true, It's also not 100% true because he's not, when he's on first, right, taking the lead and then going to second, he's not rounding as much, you know what I mean, as he would be when he was coming around. So he probably ran from second to home. It wasn't actually 180 feet. I don't know what it was, but he had to do some amount of rounding. But that really shows you that he was getting faster as he was going on, which makes sense he had to start from a standing position at first base. So I don't know. I found that to be the most fascinating play. There's just so much to break down in a really huge spot.
2: Yeah, for sure. And also, you know, it was the... That was, that was when Verlander came through for them, and they'll be looking for him to come through again on, uh, on Friday night.
1: Yeah, so we do have another series to talk about, but first let's uh, talk about our friends over at the Cut Forecast. The Cut Forecast is the podcast from the staff of MLB.com's Cut 4 section, which focuses on the lighter side of baseball. If you've made it this far in our podcast, we really think you'll enjoy it. It'll make you laugh, and you might even learn something about baseball dogs or ballpark food. Last week's episode broke down the best moments of the postseason so far, and then everyone shared their most embarrassing stories of emotional sports overreaction that sounds like something you're into, search Cut Forecast, C-U-T, number four, C-A-S-T in Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts, and click subscribe. And, you know, now back to our other series, Dodgers and Cubs. Now, there's a game tonight, Game 5, so by the time you're listening to this, things may have changed a little bit. But for the moment, the Dodgers are up three games to one. They won the first three. Uh, Last night, they lost, and I think, you know, nobody really had expectations of a sweep. You know, the Cubs are still a very good team. Uh, maybe the most memorable, two most, couple of most memorable parts of last night's game. Uh, the wind was blowing out, a lot of home runs. And we had uh, Wilson Contreras with the longest measured postseason home run in the three years we've been doing Stackcast 491 feet. So uh, that was really impressive.
2: It was also the first, let me, let me see if I can get this right. Uh, five solo home runs accounted for all five runs. It was the most solo home runs to account for all home runs in a postseason game ever. It never never been more than three. So this was five. So this is this, is the, this shattered the record. I've learned something on this. <laughs> I
1: didn't actually know that until you said it. Um, and then the other member moment in that game, this isn't even a StatCast thing, it just was an interesting thing that happened, is uh, Curtis Granderson strikes out and then um, somehow gets overturned because they said that he had tipped the ball. And I, I remember I watched this replay like 15 times, you know, slow-mo, high def. And I actually think the umpires were right there. I think he did tip it – Like. Ever so slightly, you can see like the axis and the seams changing, uh, but they overturned it and he struck out anyway.
2: So, yeah, it was it was an, it was an odd sequence. Madden went ballistic. It'll be a, it'll be if if you know it'll be a footnote unless the Cubs come back and win, in which case they'll sort of people will say it's the turning point or something. I don't know. As
1: I as I joked on Twitter, he was the first man to ever strike out five times in four plate appearances. <laughs> so uh, that was interesting. But uh, you know the Dodgers have really you know they lost yesterday, so there's that. But they have played as close to perfect postseason baseball. Uh, as you can think, that was their first loss of the postseason. And if if this doesn't kill the idea of September momentum, I don't know what will. Yeah. I mean, they played some of the, the worst baseball I think I've ever seen a good team play in early September. What was it like 1 for 15 at some point? Yeah, something, something oh. along those lines. And then they ended the season 8-2. and two. Great. And then they've been fantastic in the postseason. So, uh, you know, we also saw Cleveland being unbelievable, and then they didn't get us so. up. Momentum is a thing, but uh, you know there's a lot of reasons that the Dodgers have been successful, and the one I really want to focus on is their bullpen. Right, seven Dodger relievers have combined to allow three hits in 14 innings, 17 strikeouts and one walk, zero runs. They have been essentially perfect, and it's not just Kenley Jansen. and We'll talk about him in a second, but
2: they had like a quote, they had like a hidden no hitter. They, like they had, did. That's yeah. great.
1: That's right. our friend Matt Kelly was uh, digging that up and pointing to that. Out. Uh, the Dodger relievers. 153 expected weighted on base. Remember, Major League Average is 327. This is like half of that. 107 actual on base. So there's some luck here, but they've really been unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I look at the Cubs on the other side here. The Cubs relievers, 12 strikeouts and 13 walks. That's, uh, that's not ideal.
2: Yeah, no, it actually, it actually sort of tells a, a larger story of the series, which is, this is the, the number that stands out to me about the whole series. Cubs pitchers in the series have 32 strikeouts and 26 walks. Dodgers pitchers... Forty-three strikeouts in four walks. Four, that's like, the most absurd. Stat. And the Cubs should be happy. They should be thrilled that only that they're still alive. That they won a game. It's three-one. Like, if you have a forty-three to four strikeout walk ratio in a four-game in a, a four-game series, you should never. You shouldn't win any games.
1: Yeah, and, and I think the problem for them is Joe Maddon's made it pretty clear he trusts like two of his relievers, right? And one of them is Wade Davis, who almost certainly is not going to be available tonight after pitching. I mean, based pitches. on the
2: way they based on the way they rested him after he pitched two innings last week, he might not be available to Game Seven at this point.
1: Right, and they have to get there first. Yeah. So, um, I, I really just find that interesting. And I think if you talk about the Dodger bullpen, you know, we've talked about Kent Maeda adding a, a cutter, being really good against righties. Tony Singrani has been a, a nice weapon, but Kenley Jansen has somehow outdone himself. Like I, I think you could even have said before this season, he was on something like a Hall of Fame track for a reliever, and he upped his game this year. He was the best pitcher in Major League Baseball this year, and I can back that up. 484 pitchers faced at least 100 batters. It's a pretty good sample size to me. He had the lowest expected weighted on base. Obviously, comparing starters to relievers isn't totally fair, but still, a 198 expected weighted on base for the entire season. I think he started his season off with, like, 51 straight strikeouts before his first walk.
2: And he ended up with, like, 110 strikeouts and 7 walks, I think, on the season. It's just so something a complete like that.
1: absurdity. Uh, and he's been perfect in the postseason so far. Six games, seven innings, 12 strikeouts and one walk. What, here's what I found interesting about him, though, is if you know anything about Kenley Jansen, you know that he throws one pitch. He throws his cutter like 90% of the time. Uh, that is why he's compared to Mariano Rivera so much because it's cutter, cutter, cutter. You know this pitch is coming. You still can't hit it. Like, that's the most impressive thing I think a pitcher can do. It's not deception with him. But you noticed, I think, late in the season and especially in the postseason, he started using his slider more. And it's it's interesting because it's not just like Oh, a change of pace. I want you to think about another pitch. It's actually really good. Like if you watch this pitch, he's made uh, Rizzo and Bryant, especially, look like, kind of foolish on it. And I, I thought this was fantastic. And I know small sample size alerts are, are blaring here, but still, there were 406 pitchers who threw at least 25 sliders this year, regular season and postseason. He had an expected weighted on base on his slider of 0. 0.075, which is number one atop that list. I'm not actually saying he is the best slider in baseball. I know there's a small sample,s but I do like the idea that guys are thinking about that cutter, thinking about that cutter, and then oh my god, here comes a slider in the dirt. What do I even do with that? Yeah, it,
2: it's he's ridiculous right now. He's he's as good of a as good as any closer I've ever seen right now.
1: Uh, ever, maybe yeah. even ever. I, I think it's not it's not too soon to say he's as good as the great Mariano Rivera. I know Rivera did it for longer. you respect for that. Um, but this is like the seventh season, I think, of Jansen like, doing this kind of stuff, and what I like about the slider is it actually got better this year. He always threw it a little bit in the past, you know, 174 average against, 41% swing and miss rate, very, very good. This year, a 0.057 average and a 53% swing rate, and uh, what I found the difference was here is that, so the Dodger bullpen has this penchant for throwing high fastballs, and this kind of goes back to what we talked about before, high spin rate. Fastballs at the top of the zone can be very effective. It's basically the entire reason Josh Fields exists, is to throw those kind of pitches. Um, And I'd written about this in, like, May, after the Dodgers had swept the Cubs, and Chris Bryant talked about all those fastballs at the top of the zone. So the Major League average for uh, percentage of fastballs that are thrown at the top of the strike zone, 7.6%. The Dodger bullpen had almost 13%. That's number one as a group. Jansen was top 20 with a full 30%. So he's throwing these cutters high, and then 84% of his sliders arrived at two feet or lower from the ground where the major league average is 54%. No pitcher in baseball, minimum of 10 innings with at least 2% of his pitches being sliders and cutters had a larger difference in vertical break, which is interesting because those two pitchers, pitches slider and cutter uh, are often seen as being very similar. Not for him. Not the way he throws (laughs) them. Not the way he throws them. So uh, I, I like someone who is already so dominant taking steps to get better. And you can see it in the postseason. Like Dave Roberts has absolute confidence in Jansen, he is the best in the business. And I think you could almost say it's not even close. You know, due respect to all the Yankees and Craig Campbell and everybody, Kenley Jansen is the best.
2: He's certainly, he's, he's, on a, he's, he's, he's a cut above.
1: He is. Um, and then I think the last thing we want to do on the show is talk about Justin Turner, who you may have noticed has had somewhat of a monstrous postseason, 423, 545 on base, 769 slugging. Uh, he is actually the current all-time career record holder, for postseason on-base percentage, requiring at least 100 plate appearances, 4.95, slightly ahead of two gentlemen you may have heard of, Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth. I mean, those are names, right? Yeah, and and the
2: thing with him this postseason is that from a quality contact perspective, the performance and results line up. His expected weight on base is 4.98. His weight on base is 5.48. So like it's, he's he's. I mean, obviously he's a little a little better, but like this is he's not. You don't fake your way. To you don't figure your way to a 548 weighted on base, and the 498 kind of shows it. Uh, last night, two hits, including a homer, and two walks. He is he's a machine.
1: And what was really crushing about that loss last night was uh, it ended, I believe, when Davis got Cody Bellinger to ground into a, a double play, leaving Turner on deck. I, I wanted Turner to come up, right? I wanted I wanted that to be the game right there.
2: And what's, what's interesting about Turner um, and the sort of the the revival of his career. Um, I shouldn't even say revival because that implies that it was once up, went down, and right. came back up. <laughs> like the, his breakout is that, like, and I think we've talked about this a little before, is that he came to the Dodgers in 2014 and had a very good year in like 300 plate appearances. But the change in his batter, profi- pro- batter ball profile didn't come until after that year. So basically, like, his first year with the Dodgers, when he hit like 340 in like 100, like 300 something plate appearances, the batter ball profile was still similar to what it was with the Mets. But then it was like after his first year of the Dodgers, that's when he started adding two thousand fifteen is when he started adding the like the the, the became more of the poster child for like the airball revolution.
1: Yeah, and that first year I remember he was he was not the starting third baseman. He was on a minor league deal. He signed in like February, and he's a utility guy. He was playing shortstop. I remember he had a couple of actually really poor games at, at shortstop. He uh, was playing second base, and then eventually took over the third base job and became the Justin Turner uh, we all know and love. But it's really – man, it, it is amazing to see a guy not just like turn himself from a, a non-tendered guy into like a good starter, but to a legitimate superstar.
2: For sure. And then the, um, the fun tip that I discovered this morning is that – and this will come up – is if, if the uh, Yankees and Dodgers meet in the World Series – The team that drafted Justin Turner first, the New York Yankees. I Uh,
1: did not know that.
2: Yeah, they drafted him in the 29th round in 2000, uh, I guess it was 2004 after the, um, maybe 2005. Anyway, uh, Turner won the College World Series at Fullerton, got drafted in the 29th 29th round in 2005, a year after winning the College World Series, Uh, did not sign. A year later, was drafted by the Reds in the seventh round, traded to the Orioles for Ramon Hernandez, and uh, then I I think made him... I think he might have been non tenured in something, gotten over the Mets, non tenured again.
1: What a, a wild career. One might say that both New York teams have some sort of regret when it comes to Justin Turner. Indeed. Um, so that's our show for tonight. Do watch the Dodgers Cubs tonight. I'm really excited to see if uh, Kershaw can close this out. And uh, we will be back next week to hopefully talk about, I guess definitely talk about, teams that are in the World Series. So that's our show. This is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thanks for listening.